Let's pray as we come to the preaching of God's word. Lord, help us to hear you right now, just as we have sung from the heart. Lead us, Lord. Give us a readiness, a willingness to hear from you and to follow you. Open our ears or we won't be able to hear. Open our eyes or we won't be able to see Jesus. Open our hearts or we won't be able to receive what you, Holy Spirit, want to give to us today. So we're here before you. We humble our hearts, our minds, our wills to yours. Have your way with us, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? How can you not sing a song like that and and ask that question? (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been asked that or ever thought God was saying that to you? Isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? God seems to be saying that a lot around here lately. He said it to me about retiring next year from pastoral ministry. He has said it to people who have been forced to look for other jobs or to sell their homes. Uh, He has said it to people whose health problems required some lifestyle changes or maybe a relocation that they just didn't want to have to do. He has said it to people who have been forced to take on heavy responsibilities with children or parents or grandchildren that they never really expected. Isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? Sooner or later, God says that to every disciple who follows Jesus, and usually multiple times. He says it about their circumstances, or their relationships, or even the geography of their heart. We'll talk about that a little bit later. When last we left Jacob, that's what God was saying to him. Isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? We're starting the second half of our Jacob sermon series on a disciple's life, the blessing and the limp, we get both of those gifts, the blessing and the limp, as we walk with God, just as Jacob did. So today we're going to talk about place, from the middle of Genesis chapter 31, place. By now, Jacob, just to recap, had spent 20 years far from his home, hiding from the anger of his brother Esau. All those years, he had worked for his shifty uncle Laban picking up two wives, their two maidservants, 12 children, and a huge flock of his own. And now God was essentially saying to Jacob, isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? You remember how in Jacob's stairway to heaven dream, God had promised that he would bring Jacob back one day to his homeland, that promised land of Canaan. Well, in today's text, that time has come. There is somewhere else Jacob is supposed to be. So let's talk about where you're supposed to be. Where you're supposed to be, and how do you know? Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the dark. He has his ways of making it clear when it's time for you to be somewhere else, to make some kind of move. Trust me on this, because I'm experiencing it myself, and I know some of you are as well. For Jacob, in our text today, There were three signals, if you will, which are still among those God uses to lead us and direct us today. First of all, 
you may no longer feel settled where you are. Earlier in our chapter, Genesis 31, in verses 1 and 2, it became clear that Jacob wasn't welcome in Laban's region anymore. Verse 1, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. For you, it may be an inner restlessness, a growing pressure against your desire to stay where you are or to stay as you are. You may get laid off, or you you simply may sense that God is closing a chapter in your life. Also, it could be that God may tell you clearly to make a move. That's what happened to Jacob in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God has lots of ways to speak to people. Scripture, godly counsel, dreams, or a growing sense of direction and leading as you're praying about some things. Finally, others may confirm your direction. Others may confirm your direction. Jacob called his two wives, Rachel and Leah, together to explain to them what had been happening. Now, Rachel and Leah, uh, who weren't all that great at teamwork, as you may recall, uh, they agreed. First time they probably ever agreed about anything. They agreed. It was time to go. In unison, they say to Jacob in verse 16, so do whatever God has told you. And that's always wise counsel. God almost always uses others to confirm the direction he wants us to go. Have any of you experienced that? I certainly have. I I have personally experienced this many, many times. Uh, When I graduated from seminary many, many years ago, I was asked if Shelley and I would come back to Northern California for me to pastor a new church that was being planted near where I grew up. It was interesting to me. We were in a home group here, and we asked them to pray about this for us. They did, and then they told us they didn't think we should go. And the reason was they thought I was not ready. I said, hey, I asked you to pray, (laughs) not to tell me what you think. (laughs) I didn't like that one bit bit at all, but, but they were right. They were right. And God used them to lead us, and we stayed. A few years later, when we were well underway in the preparations to plant this church, I got another request to come pastor a church in Southern California that a friend had been pastoring and had left. I said, well, I can only consider that if someone else would step in to lead this church planting work here. So I had a candidate in mind, and I, a friend of mine, I asked him, he was a key leader in the core group that was forming for this church, I asked if he would step in to be the church planter here. He said, no way. You need to do it. (laughs) God used him to lead us, and we stayed. Then when our church here was several years old, another request came to me uh, to, if I would come to, uh, to Northern California, it was a church that was near where Shelley grew up. We thought, well, maybe it's She'll get back to her roots, you know. But we already had a trip planned to visit family in California, so we figured we would go and visit and worship in that church on one of our Sundays there. 
We did, right before returning to Philadelphia. And when we got back, I, I asked Shelley, what do you think? And she said, I, I think God still wants us here in Philadelphia at New Life. And she said, and we like it here. Why should we go? I felt the same way. So God used her to lead us, and we stayed. So as you can see, I tried to get out of here numerous times and go to another place. (laughs) But other people always got in the way. Just kidding. We praise God that he said to Shelley and to me over the years, New Life Philly is the place you're supposed to be. I will make it your home and I will be with you, and I will bless you there. And he has. He really has. Now, my examples could imply that God's movement and his leading is always a matter of changing your geography or your location. But there are also times when the movement God wants you to make is all within the confines of your own heart, such as moving from resentment to forgiveness. That's a big relocation. Moving from fear to boldness. Moving from making demands to extending grace. Those journeys of the heart are every bit as difficult as any geographical move, if not more so. In Jacob's case, it was a difficult but deeply significant move. Back to the land of promise, his homeland. And what you notice is that God never moves his people, but that they are brought closer to him and closer to the blessings of his promises. So you can count on that among the things that you don't know. This is something you know. God always wants to lead you in a direction that brings you closer to him and to his particular place of blessing for you. So let's talk about risks, risks on the journey from here to there. Jacob has to take a journey. So back to that question God loves to ask his people, isn't there somewhere else you're supposed to be? In our story today, Jacob leaves for his homeland. And we soon learn a strange thing about the journeys God sends us on toward his greater blessing and his closer presence. Namely, they are almost always hair-raising adventures. Any of you ever experienced that? (laughs) God leads you and directs you to to a journey, and a faith journey, and man, oh man, it's a hair-raising adventure. We learn that the journey, whether it's a geographical journey or a journey of the heart, the journey from here to there always comes with risks, with danger. There are always enemies between us. They want to get in between us and the God-blessed life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can count on the world, the flesh, and the devil stirring up trouble for you. Just factor that in. In this story, Laban is the enemy. Verses 19 to 31 tell us that Laban was really ticked off when he heard that Jacob had made a run for it. Verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, 
He pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Verse 26, Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you longed to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Can you picture this? Laban has all his relatives with him. This is a big mob as they're tracking Jacob down for seven days. I figure they must have been like Don Corleone's godfather family. You know, they're, they're muscle. Laban is bringing the muscle. Did you catch the menace in Laban's words in verse 29? I have the power to harm you. I have the power to harm you. That's a veiled threat. It scares Jacob because he's concerned Laban will take Rachel and Leah by force. God is calling him to a new journey, leading him to his promised land. And that journey is already incredibly dangerous and full of risk, and it's only seven days old. This story shows us, I think, that the key risk and really the greatest danger we face in our journeys of faith is falling prey to unbelief and idolatry. Falling prey to unbelief and idolatry. In our story, Rachel is the mirror to see our own unbelief and idolatry through hers. Verse 19 tells us that Rachel stole her father's household gods. She didn't believe the Lord would be enough for her. So she had to have some other gods handy if needed. So kids, I want to talk to the kids who are here for in the service today. I want you to Make a quick drawing of what you think a household god might look like. Household god, what might that look like? And while you're doing that drawing, I just want to say, here we go again. Something in our text that seems, at least to me, to be pretty strange. Two weeks ago, it was wives trading mandrake plants for sex with the husband and help with conceiving a child. Yes, that's in the Bible. Last week, it was branches stripped of some of their bark and placed in the watering troughs so the sheep and the goats could see them while mating and produce offspring that looked speckled, spotted, or streaked like the sticks did. Yes, that's in the Bible. And today, it is household gods that Laban kept in his tent, which Rachel steals as Jacob's family steals away on their journey back to Canaan. Yes, that's in the Bible too. So what's this about? What were household gods? Well, they were small idols that could fit on some kind of a shelf or mantle or trunk. They were very common in the ancient Near East, usually shaped out of clay or carved out of stone or bone. Most families had a few that they had either made or bought in the hope that the gods these little figures represented 
would help their family prosper by sending them good weather, good crops, good livestock, good health, and so on. So what did these household gods look like? Kids, are you working on your drawings? On screen, I'm going to show you a few examples of some actual household gods that have been found in archaeological digs done in the area and the time frame of the patriarchs in Genesis. So here, uh, take a look at some of these uh, household gods. That's right, elf on a shelf. Who, who knew they were that ancient? I, I really thought they were more modern than that. But seriously, that's what household gods were like. An elf on a shelf. The here coming up on screen are some actual uh, household gods found in digs. And you can see that they were small, portable, simple, like an elf on a shelf. You would set them up somewhere where you could see them, pray to them, make offerings to them, and ask them for help and guidance or direction. Frederick Buchner wrote a novel about Jacob called Son of Laughter. I read it this summer to kind of fire up my imagination as I was reading Genesis and preparing to preach this series of sermons. And here's what he wrote in his opening chapter about Laban and his household gods in Jacob's voice. They were no taller than from my wrist to the tip of my middle finger. They lived on a shelf in my uncle's cellar. One of them was a bearded child in a high-peaked cap. Another wore a skirt of fish scales with plump toes and a round, full belly. Another was bald and beardless. He had no eyes and only a crack in the stone for his mouth. They told my uncle many things that he lusted to know. They told him where to look for the missing goat or the strayed lamb. They told him where to plant and where to buy for the least and sell for the most. They told him about rain. He kept a lamp burning for them at all hours. He fed them on barley cakes, honey cakes, radishes, beer. He rubbed them with oil, their beards and bellies, their fat toes. He burned things for them. Every day he talked to them. You could hear him at it. He wheedled and bullied and teased the way he traded oxen. Rachel probably stole her father's household gods because she was quite familiar with them and because she was afraid. She wanted a little added protection for the trip, just in case God didn't come through for them on this dangerous journey, just in case God needed a little help from an elf on a shelf. So Rachel threw them into her saddlebags, and off they went. We tend to be more sophisticated about our idols these days. We don't usually put them out in the open like an elf on a shelf where they can be seen. Instead, we set up our idols on the mantle of our hearts to help us with our fears and for the things we lust for. We have our little idols, such as comfort, Security, significance, being loved, having a good reputation, having the right not to be criticized or judged, having good kids who don't talk back, making good money, having a good easy life, and on and on and on, household gods. Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us to leave our little gods behind and to travel light enough 
and to trust you enough that we can go where you lead us. Help us to have our hands empty enough and open enough that we can hold on to you. Back to Rachel. Stealing her father's household gods. Laban wants them back. The problem is, Jacob doesn't know anything about it. That was Rachel's little secret. So he boldly offers this word to Laban in verse 32. If you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Well, Jacob has just unwittingly pronounced a death sentence on Rachel, the only woman he has ever loved. He has just issued Laban a search warrant. And there aren't that many places in a tent where you can hide things. The tension builds in verses 33 through 35. Verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched, but could not find the household gods. Yes, that's in the Bible, too. (laughs) When there is only one place left to look, Rachel is sitting on it. She refuses to get up, offering the excuse that it's her time of the month. A pretty wily move on her part. You've got to give her some props for this. That would make her Papa Laban proud. He had trained her well in the ways of deception, had he not? It's a close call, though, for Jacob and his family. You know, there are lessons all through these, this, these stories. There, there's a lesson here that, you know, as long as we bring the world's gods along with us for just a little extra security, we are vulnerable Laban's one legitimate claim against Jacob, whether Jacob knew it or not, was that he had Laban's gods. And that is how the devil lays hold on us as well. We have what we regard as some, just some tiny little idols that we think are no big deal compared to what others have. You should see that guy. But they expose us to danger to Satan's clutches. You know, we think, oh, I need a little more security than just Jesus. We would never say that out loud, but in our heart of hearts, I need a little more security than just Jesus. So that money we're holding back from giving, because you know we might need it, that fallback plan, if obedience to the Lord gets, well, just too difficult, that little white lie to avoid disapproval or conflict, that fudging just a bit on your taxes to get a bigger refund, that padding of the resume to to be sure you get yours. You know, I have to take matters into my own hands because what if God is not enough? And if I do that, I will never know if God is enough. What you've got there is a saddlebag full of idols, my friends. Later in the Bible... God will tell Jacob's descendants, you shall have no other gods before me. Rachel believed these gods 
would give her and her family an edge in their dangerous journey. But did they? No. They actually exposed them all to greater danger. And when they were in danger, those household gods were, well, shall we say indisposed. They were hidden underneath a woman's behind. Those gods were in a pretty undignified place, and they were useless. The moral of the story, the Lord, the sovereign Lord, he's the one and only true and mighty God. And by the way, if you have gods that can either be stolen or hidden, it's time for a trade-in. You need a new god. You need a god who cannot be stolen or hidden. You need God the creator. You need God the redeemer. You need God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be your sovereign Lord. He's the only God you will ever need. He will protect and bless you. He will forgive and restore you. He will delight in you and provide all you need. He will be your sun to give you light, your north star to lead you, your shade by day, your pillar of fire by night. His faithfulness will never leave you. Praise God. Praise God. So this brings us to our final takeaway from this passage, which is that God is in both your journey and your place. God is in both your journey and your place. The key verse in this whole story today, I think, is verse 42, where Jacob says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty-handed. Twenty years have gone by, and Jacob knows the faithfulness of God to him, to his father, to his grandfather before him, and that's become his anchor. He knows that's why he has any good thing that he has. But did you notice that unusual name Jacob gives God in verse 42? The fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. He will use that name again in verse 53. This is the only place in the Bible where that name, the fear of Isaac, is used for God. Where did it come from? You might remember that Isaac had an experience with God that no one else ever had, but Jesus would. God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice the life of his son Isaac as a test of faith, of trust in God. And things had progressed to the point of Isaac being tied up on a pile of firewood with his father, knife in hand, ready to strike. God had then intervened to stop the action dead in its tracks and had pointed Abraham to a ram caught in a thicket nearby as a substitute offering for Isaac. This was a foreshadowing, wasn't it, of Jesus coming as the Lamb of God to be the substitute for our lives. I mean, we were trussed up by our sin, ready for the fire of a holy God to consume us. And then Jesus... And then Jesus came. Jesus stepped in. He stepped in as the ram in the thicket to take our place. He took the knife and he took the fire for your sin at the cross. Isaac was just seconds away from the knife and the fire. How afraid he must have been. And he only escaped 
because of the goodness of God, the direct mercy and provision of God himself. No wonder God was called the fear of Isaac. God should be the fear of me. He should be the fear of you too. We were spared when we should have died. So I think one thing Isaac had learned, and I assume passed on to his son Jacob, was this. Fear the Lord. A lot of scary things in this world. Don't worry about that. Fear the Lord. Fear him because our lives are totally, always in his hands. Look at Laban's last gasp for control in uh, verses 43 through 46. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now. Let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. Here's another Ebenezer we were talking about. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban's claim that the daughters, the children, the flocks were his, that was simply bogus. He was just blowing smoke. Jacob had worked hard for all he had, and God had multiplied it into even greater blessing. What's interesting to me is how Laban makes that claim and then immediately gives up on it. He doesn't hold on to it for about two seconds. Instead, he immediately says, will you make a covenant with me? And he makes a covenant with Jacob that cedes all rights to Jacob. God was at work. God was at work in that covenant, and it is a foreshadowing of the new covenant he makes with us through Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we head into a great faith journey that has great risk, great danger, our sin nags at us. Our bad conscience condemns us. Satan whispers that we can run, but we cannot hide. That he owns us because of this sin or that sin. But he's as full of hot air as Laban was. Trust that God can cancel any enemy claim against you. He has nailed it all to the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. So let's finish up the story. Verse 51. Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. So Laban and Jacob agree never to harm each other. In fact, they will never see each other again. This was doubly good for Jacob. God was making it as clear as a pile of rocks that Jacob would never again have to go back into that barren land of Laban, the place of laboring and laboring and laboring in vain, and that his old nemesis, Laban, would would never come after him again. So when you and I come to Christ... God puts a boundary around us. 
Never again must we cross back into that barren land of empty promises and laboring, laboring, laboring in vain. Never again can the world, the flesh, or the devil lay any rightful claim upon us. God is taking us on faith journeys that always have points of no return along the way, like this one for Jacob. This is a point of no return for Jacob. And we have those too in our lives. And at those points, perhaps an old temptation to lie and deceive will be left behind. Or a long-standing bondage of some kind. Or a time of silence or confusion. Or a debilitating fear or memory. God will lead you. And he will take you where you're supposed to be. Where he has called you. And he will be with you surrounding you every step of the way from here to there. I once read about something that the ancient, ancient Celtic Christians called the chiam, which means the encircling. And when the Celtic saints were troubled by evil or attacked by enemies, they, they drew the chiam around them. Uh, sometimes they actually made a circle around themselves with a stick or, or their index finger. This was not magic. It was a physical way of expressing the reality of the encircling presence of God. And that circle was said to accompany the person on his journey and keep him from danger. They did this to make vivid the very thing this passage teaches. And here's what they would recite as they rested within the circle. Something we could recite ourselves in light of the work of God through Christ and how we are encircled by his saving work and his saving presence. Here's what they would pray. And use it in your own devotional life if you find it helpful. They would pray, circle me, O God. Keep hope within, despair without. Circle me, O God. Keep peace within, keep turmoil out. Circle me, O God. Keep calm within, keep storms without. Circle me, O God. Keep strength within, keep weakness out. The mighty three, my protection be, encircling me. You are around my life, my home, encircling me, O sacred three. May God, the three in one, circle you. May he circle you with his saving presence this week. Amen? Amen. Let's spend a little time in prayer. I'll ask the worship team to come on up and give us some music to pray by. And prayer team, would you also please come up to the front? And if you'd like to pray with somebody before you go home, uh, anything that God may have touched your heart about today, maybe that you've got some household gods laying around in the corners of your life, and you'd like to clean house, come and pray. Come and ask somebody to pray with you about that. Maybe you're dealing with a lot of fear. You need really need to know the encircling presence of God in your life this week. Well, come and and have somebody pray with you for that this week. Whatever it might be, just just come for prayer. Prayer team, come on down and let's let's get on our feet. Spend a few minutes in prayer as we close out the service. Hmm.